humble inquiry is asking the question to which you don't already know the answer. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd, and I'm so glad you tuned in. It's kind of a sad day for me, and probably kind of a sad day for you. Because earlier this week, our beloved Edgar Schein passed away. And it's hard to encompass how important Edgar Schein is to the work you do, and you may not even know about him. And that's okay. I mean, I don't think that would bug him at all. But what he did was really understand and coin the phrase organizational culture. And you know a lot about that word. Shine's amazing. He was amazing. He'll always be amazing to me. And I was lucky enough to get to know him and spend time with him. In fact, my favorite story, and I have two, of Edgar Shine involved when I first met him. He was doing a kind of an, uh, an executive summit held on Cape Cod, and he did one every summer for years. And somebody somewhere told me about this little session, and at the time I was really interested in what he was laying down. So I asked my boss if I could go, and sure enough, my boss said, yeah, you can go. And I went to Cape Cod, and I sat in the high school on Cape Cod in a tiny little auditorium, And he sat on stage in a chair, and every morning from 8 a.m. till noon, he would just talk about the work he's done and organizations and how they learn and how they change and how organizations can do and will improve. And then every single morning, and that was usually five days, it was quite remarkable, every single morning at about 10 o'clock they would have a break. And the break was very Cape Codian, if that's a word. So it was kind of local done. It, was, it wasn't a fancy meeting by any stretch of the imagination. And every morning they would have this incredible egg salad. And Edgar Shine and I would meet every morning at the egg salad bowl. In fact, I'm not even sure other people ate egg salad. Maybe it was not good enough for them. I, I, I couldn't tell, really. But every morning we'd talk about this egg salad. And we sort of became friends. And year after year, and I suppose I went um, a couple of years. I mean, I, I went several times for sure. Year after year, we'd meet at the egg salad, and he would remember me, and I would talk to him. And it was kind of a long-term egg salad-related relationship. Funny, I saw him recently, just before he passed away, and he talked about the egg salad. But at one point, he asked me how I was doing and how everything was going. And I said I was really struggling to finish my PhD. I was working on the dissertation part, the book report. And he looked at me and he said, Todd, I only can give you one piece of advice. And I said, sure, what is it? And he said, it's not going to be your life's greatest work. The most important dissertation is a dissertation that's finished. And you guys, that was really important and helpful information to me. It made a huge difference. And so I will always fondly think of Edgar Schein, no doubt. And I hope you do as well. But I wanted to take you just into him and his thinking a little bit more. If you go back and look in the archives of the podcast, 
he's been on the podcast two or three times. I mean, he's not a stranger at all to the idea of understanding safety in a new way. He's a part of that journey, and he's been a big part of it and an important part of it. But for today, I want to give you as a tribute his discussion on the last idea he had. Now, why that's important, and you should ask me, why is that important, Todd? It's because another friend of mine, Edward T. Hall, he may not be a name you know, but he's the father of nonverbal communication. He's really an important communication scholar and an important psychologist like Edgar, and actually kind of a peer of Edgar Schein. He told me, and he lives in Santa Fe, or I'm sorry, he lived in Santa Fe. He's been, he's been gone a while. But we were spending time with him once in his house and just sitting around the living room talking. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, the most interesting work a thinker does is at the end of their life. Because everything they've thought up until that time comes together and gets kind of distilled. And I said, well, Dr. Hall, what is sort of your most interesting theory? And he said to me, just right in the face, he just looked at me and said, if you want to understand another culture, make a friend. And I thought, gosh, what a beautiful way to end all the work you've done with a, a, a very, very poignant and directed piece of information. That was cool. Well, that's kind of what happened with Edgar Schein, too, is his final work really centered around this idea of something he calls humble inquiry. Let's not talk much, aboard, much more about it. Let's just listen to what Edgar Schein says and know that we will miss him. And he's an important part of who we are. I'm so thankful he had a long and incredible life because he needed it. It was a really important life and he used every second of it until one day he just didn't wake up. This is Edgar Schein. Humble inquiry is asking the question to which you don't already know the answer, a curiosity. And the importance of that is that that very curiosity, that interest in the other person, is precisely why humble inquiry is the first and most important step in building any kind of relationship. Whether you're just making a new friendship, or wooing a girl, or trying to talk to a teammate on a more personal basis, it usually almost always, or it almost always should, I should say, start with some form of humble inquiry. Not necessarily a question. It may be a revelation. You may say something very personal about yourself. But the attitude should convey that I'm telling you something personal because I'm interested in you and would like to share this and would hope that you might reciprocate uh, with something personal back to me. So having said that humble inquiry is the basis for building any kind of relationship, <clears throat> how does this apply in group or team situations? Uh, I love athletic analogies, but of course the analogies of uh, hockey and basketball, soccer, don't quite capture the issue 
because there is a certain degree of interdependence among the members, but I think where humble inquiry truly applies, it's where you have true interdependency. As in a seesaw, for example, if both people don't work equally hard, the seesaw just can't function. Taking this to the sports analogy, I would think a very good example would be the relay team. Some of you may remember that several Olympics ago, uh, the U.S. had by far the fastest uh, 100 and 200-yard dash runners. But in two or three of the men's relay races, they lost the race. Why? Because they dropped the baton. So having the fastest runners didn't help if the relay race hinged on the issue of actual successful baton passing. So I think we have to really think carefully about what kinds of interdependencies we are talking about when we label a group a team. Uh, The casual saying that uh, we're going to be a team now may not mean anything if there is not, in fact, any kind of real task interdependence. So in a helping situation, one could say that when there is true interdependence, as in a complex surgical team, which I'll tell you about in a minute, then you could think of the helping process in a team being perpetual, mutual helping. Every member all the time in a helping relationship with every other member. And if the helping relationship itself hinges on a degree of personal trust and personal knowledge of the other person, then it's clear that for that team to get built requires humble inquiry from every member to every other member and from the team leader to the other members of the team. So a team, in my sense, is a group of people who, in order to get the task done, are in a perpetual, mutual, helping situation. And they get into that situation through having built relationships, and those relationships were built through humble inquiry. Now let's take a couple of examples. Many years ago, a colleague of mine who is now a professor at the Harvard Business School, Amy Edmondson, uh, studied 16 hospitals that were all initially trying to develop uh, skill in doing a new open-heart surgical procedure that did not require as much ripping the chest open, uh, but was more complicated and more delicate, and therefore required a fair amount of uh, helping between the cardiac surgeon, the perfusionist who runs the heart-lung machine, 
uh, the anesthesiologists, and the nurses and techs who were involved. What Amy Edmondson found was that eight of these hospitals decided to try the operation and after some experiments with it, abandoned it as being too complicated. The other eight hospitals also tried the same operation and found that they could do it and adopted it as part of their regular procedure. So what was the difference? So Amy studied these 16 hospitals from every conceivable angle. <coughs> For example, were they different size? Were they in different parts of the country? Uh, were they rural-urban? And all the efforts to try to find a difference between the ones who did the operation in the end and ones who did not, did not work out. Amy was not able to find any demographic or other structural differences. So then she went to talk to the various team members and the cardiac surgeons, and there she saw a difference. The cardiac surgeons who did not succeed in doing the operation in the end, went about it in the following way. They apparently said to themselves, this surgery obviously replies a great deal of skill. So <clears throat> not only am I skilled enough to do this, but I better have on my team all the most skilled professionals that are available in my hospital. So he tapped the people who he thought had the professional competence to interact with him to do this operation. So they went ahead and did it and found <coughs> that things happened during the operation that were unanticipated and that were actually outside the professional range of skills of what the different members of that team were able to do. And so they were not able to help each other and found the operation in the end too complicated. That's what the senior surgeon said. It's just too complicated. So we're going to go back to the old tried and true methods. Now, when Amy went to the eight cardiac surgeons who did continued to use the operation, it's interesting that she got quite a different story. Apparently, these eight surgeons also started with the recognition, because all of them had had to go through the formal training of what the operation was about, all of them recognized it was extremely delicate, complicated operation. So the first thing that these eight surgeons did differently was they asked for volunteers. They said, we have a chance here to do something new and different. It's going to involve some unanticipated events. So I would like people who are competent in doing this job, but who would like to volunteer and work with me to do this experiment. Having acquired a team of volunteers, he then added in addition to their formal training on the operation, some 
team building kind of training that would get the group very well acquainted with each other. So he did various things. He got a simulator. They practiced on the simulator. They got to know each other very well. And they recognized that during the operation, they really had to be a team in perpetual mutual helping relationships to each other. And because they had practiced and had gotten to know each other, they were able to do it. They were able to deal with the unforeseen circumstances. All the rank and uh, expertise fell away in relation to get the job done. And whoever needed whatever information or any correction that had to be done, these teams were able to do it because of the relationship they had built with each other. Now, how, how do we describe such relationship building? In the Humble Inquiry book, I argue that the key is to overcome the formality of organizational roles and maybe even the formality of what we end up calling professionalism. Maybe professionalism actually isolates you, makes you feel like you're the only one who knows how to do this and you're going to be so expert that you'll never need any help anyway. So uh, maybe in the eight units that didn't do the operation, the professionalism actually got in the way. What I think happened in the cardiac teams that did it was what I would call the senior cardiac surgeon personalized the relationships. And that personalization could be as simple as moving from uh, your doctor so-and-so, uh, but I'd like to call you John, and you can call me David. And nurse, uh, you are Nurse Jones, but I think we ought to be on a first-name basis, so I'd like to call you Amy. And when we're not with patients where we have to wear our roles in front of us, uh, you can call me David. So that would be a very, very simple step in what I would call personalization. A further step might be, well, uh, tell me where you're from. Where did you go to school? Do you have a family? Uh, we all know in our various cultures how to play by the rules so that we don't get over-personal. We don't ask uh, intimate questions about how is your marriage or uh, things that the other person might be not willing to reveal or might even be embarrassed that he's being asked. So personalization is working the personal issue within the legitimate cultural and job contexts, not any old question. And underneath it all is, I think, a, a very, very important central principle that was first articulated in a uh, 
unanticipated way uh, by my son-in-law, who is a, a children's spine surgeon uh, in the Seattle Children's Hospital. And I know that his uh, stenosis operations are very, very complicated that requires uh, tight, perpetual, mutual helping from his team. And I learned that uh, his team was very diverse, different nationalities, different religions. Uh, and one would have thought that it would be very difficult to get them into a mutual helping relationship. So one day I did ask Wally how he managed this. And he gave me a one-line answer that I think has the wisdom of the ages in it when you stop to think about it. He said, without batting an eye, so to speak, he said, well, I selected them initially uh, for being able to do the job. But once I had my candidates ready, I took them out to lunch. I took them out to lunch. Now think about that. Eating right off the bat, equilibrate status. Eating is something we do together. Eating is something that reduces the distance between the more uh, senior and the more junior person. So taking them out to lunch as step one is actually probably the very wisest thing you can do. From that, you can then build on other kinds of personal questions and begin to develop these relationships. So it links, in a sense, to the cultural norm that we know uh, that for many kinds of relationships, particularly where you need trust, even in the business context, in a lot of cultures, curiously not so much in the U.S., but in a lot of cultures, Having a meal together is a prerequisite to any kind of conversation that is going to be building up a trusting relationship. Uh, Americans are notoriously impatient with Japanese managers who really don't want to talk business until the meal is over. And on the other hand, uh, getting back to Amy Edmondson's teams, one of the things she observed in the hospitals that were doing the cardiac uh, operation was that the cardiac teams ate in the hospital cafeteria as a team, whereas most of the other doctors and most of the nurses had their own separate spaces in the, in the dining area and always congregated with each other. So look at the symbol that this represented, that these cardiac teams that were doing this very complicated stuff were also eating together and thereby symbolizing this mutual perpetual helping relationship. So to review a little bit, this applies primarily when there is true interdependence. So we don't have to go around building relationships and trust willy-nilly. 
there may be many kinds of relationships where it doesn't matter, where we can count on help or performance uh, even without building a relationship. But in any real counseling situation or in any team situation, it's essential to have a relationship, not only to get the helping process going, but as in a counseling relationship, even to determine what is the client's real problem. Because we know that when we first get together with a counselor, we often feel like we ought to test the counselor by maybe floating some part of the problem, but not really telling all of it. So if you're the counselor and you're meeting your client for the first time, instead of taking whatever the client says is his problem as the problem and jumping right in with all kinds of advice, consider seriously that the very first thing you should do is to ask a couple of humble inquiry questions. It might be, tell me more. It might be, can you elaborate? It might be, tell me a little bit about yourself. What those humble inquiry questions do is reassure the client that they are okay, that they've been heard, that they're being accepted, and that they're going to be listened to. And that very fact makes them feel better about themselves, makes them more trusting of the counselor, and therefore makes it more likely that they will reveal what is really on their mind. So humble inquiry is the way of building a relationship through being interested in the other person, and it becomes critical in counseling and team situations when there is true interdependency. In another segment, I will discuss the particular problems of humble inquiry across hierarchical boundaries, and that's for another time. Thank you. Shine is recognized as one of the most prominent psychologists in the field of organizational development. And it's not wrong to say that he's well known as an American business theorist. He's done so much, it's remarkable. His educational background comprises of studying at three incredibly important universities in the United States, including the University of Chicago, Stanford, and Harvard from which he earned his Ph.D. in social psychology. He was born March 5th, 1928 in Zurich, and he's American by nationality. According to the theories of organizational development prepared by him, an organization's culture, which is made up of the values and beliefs, does not develop instantly. It's a long and intricate process which requires time and adjustments on the part of employees, especially to develop and take the organization to some kind of newer level. Shine's theories in the field of organizations comprise the 
many things, but the studies that he conducted on group processes and the way groups learn and how we can help learning groups develop even more effectively. The famous terminology of corporate culture was a word that he coined and that reflects the collective norms and behaviors of people forming an organization. The shine model of organizational culture, one I've spoken of many, many, many times before, presented in the 80s, really is comprised of three different levels of an org's culture. Shine identifies and categorizes these levels as artifacts, that's the one you can see, and behaviors, and then espoused values and assumptions. Those are the ones you can't see. Artifacts and behaviors are defined as the elements that set the behavioral norms and the standards in an organization, and it includes things like how people dress and furniture and architecture, signs, stickers, posters, office humor, all the things that sort of make up the organization. They're the visible elements that allow us to understand the culture of the organization. The espoused values represents the company and how the company wants to believe it is. The third and the last component are the shared basic beliefs that workers have around that organization. This model is worth looking into deeper and better because it's an important way to think about how organizations change. Edgar Schein was a distinguished psychologist in his field, maybe the best there ever was. He's won all sorts of awards and accolades, including a Lifetime Achievement Award in Workplace Learning and awards for career scholarship, as well as well-deserved the Marion Gislason Award for Leadership and Executive Development. Edgar Schein was an amazingly important part of the development of the thinking we talk about and work with every single day.